Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Chris Atherton, CEO of EnergyNet, to walk through all the major transactions in the non-op and mineral space for 2022. During the episode, Chris and I talk about some of the major trends that emerged throughout the year and walk through all the major deals on a quarter by quarter basis with the backdrop of inflation, natural gas prices and oil prices as they went up and down throughout the year. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Chris and I had to say. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. Happy New Year. Welcome back on the podcast. Yeah, Happy New Year, Tim. Happy to be here. I'm excited to do this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I haven't done this to date. This is going to be a non-op and minerals look back on 2022 from a transactional perspective. I think both spaces and asset classes are maturing. The ecosystem of buyers are starting to solidify. And so there's, if you went back seven or eight years, this would have been a five minute podcast. Yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. But, but now there's tons to track. And I think there's some trends that have emerged that are interesting. So I'll kind of kick it over to you. When you look back at last year, you guys have so much deal flow. What kind of comes to mind, general trends, when you're looking at non-op and minerals, and some takeaways and kind of headwinds go, or tailwinds going into 2023. Yeah, certainly. You know, we had a really active year in 2022. Uh, we sold or uh, successfully transacted on about $1 billion, uh, $80 million in total asset transactions for the year. Probably, a, I would say, a, uh, almost half that was was royalties and minerals and non-op. The other half was operations and, and leasehold. Uh, the operated packages tend to be higher value, larger packages, but we did a, a significant deal flow in the minerals and royalty space and the non-op space. Like year in review, kind of hitting the rewind button for 2022. And the big things were the Russian-Ukraine conflict and ongoing war, and then just a lot of volatility in, in pricing. I mean, it was a, definitely a, a better year than 2021, but for the most part, I mean, there were some really ups and downs. I mean, in the summer, they, you know, Oil prices were $100. I mean, gas prices got up to, uh, I believe, $9 or, or, or somewhere. You know, uh, Aubrey McClendon was probably busting out of his grave, you know, uh, trying to capture some of that. Uh, it was a very interesting year. And, and like, uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but the, the non-op space uh, has really become much more active and aggressive and more institutionalized. Yeah. No, and, and from my perspective, you know, I think on the mineral side, the public space got more active, particularly on the U.S. side. I think Freehold was fairly active in 2021. And that's that's all all public minerals companies, Right. Right. Then you had, you know, a lot of Permian transactional activity. I think looking back, there, there's definitely notable deals in each basin, but a majority of the quote unquote chunky deals, 100 million plus are Permian driven. You know, one footnote that's really interesting is I think diversification uh, from an end buyer is becoming a little bit more in vogue. I think there was a bit of pure play, clean story, have investors understand what's going on from in your portfolio, particularly if you're public. There was a, a bit of a step away from that. I think you look at Cidio merging with Brigham, they're in four or five basins now. Uh, there's a handful of larger kind of diversified PDP type uh, transactions that that traded. So that's interesting going forward. Maybe there's a little bit more sophistication and comfortability for investors around the minerals asset class to where being super rifle shot isn't as necessary from a storytelling perspective. So those were, were some of the things uh, in addition that I saw. And obviously, the overhang, uh, everything, you know, I think there's a recession looming. Inflation is high. You know, inflation right. was one and a half percent January 2021, kind of climbed up to 7% by the end of 2021. And it was bouncing between seven and nine percent this year. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting backdrop for deal making. I mean, 
the inflation, kind of looming recession, all the technology stocks, people realized they couldn't grow to the moon or grow to the sun, you know, and, and those have, have fallen back. And it's interesting kind of seeing some of the technology type companies saying, you know, uh, we're going to focus on, you know, uh, cash flow and making returns for our investors, which is like, oh, yeah, I remember that, that happening with the oil and gas space a couple of years uh -huh. ago. We've experienced that. I mean, the oil and gas space, I mean, shale 2.0 and, you know, returning cash to investors and capital discipline and, you know, stock buybacks and dividend recaps have had a major impact and the kind of growth at all costs is, is, is gone and probably will be gone. But I think with the S&P 500 uh, energy space is, you know, it was at, you know, two and a half percent. Now it's at like 5.25%. I think the story is going to continue and we're going to be a bigger portion of the of the overall S&P 500. But that goes back to kind of your diversified mineral portfolio or diversified non-op portfolio. The companies aren't, you know, drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling. I mean, it's, it's probably best and probably a good steward of your investor's capital to have a diversified portfolio. You know, what if these companies don't just drill as many wells you expect in the hottest basins and they're more prudent about their development program and capital and, you know, keep the capital discipline mantra that doesn't seem to be going away? You, you want to have a balance of kind of high impact wells that are drilled and you have a big cash flow that comes to, you know, into your company, but it's also nice to have a, a steady base and, and, and a variety of basins where, you know, gas and oil can come out of favor and, and, and you're, you're benefiting from, from all those factors, or at least you're not uh, as out, you know, out on, out on, out in the coal. If, if something does happen to oil or gas prices, gas prices have fallen significantly just in the past three months and, you know, with the three handle uh, now or four handle now. So you have to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket, maybe. You know, it's interesting though, when you do a look back, because our memories are so short as an industry, it's just human nature. I mean, we were around, around this gas price in the beginning of the year, but there's a lot of fear right now, right? If you're holding <laughs> right. that gas. But January of last year, you didn't have that. You know, oh yeah, it felt, like, felt, felt great having gas prices at the, almost three, four dollars. Now it feels like the world's ending. It's the uncertainty of, you know, are we going to continue to slide down the hill, right? But, right. Uh, you know, it's been a unseasonably warm winter in Europe, I think has been one of the major drivers for that. One, one last point I want to make on on inflation. This goes in, I'm really going to lean on you to provide some insight. You guys have done so many non-op transactions. With inflation being where it is, commercial debt is really not that attractive right now. Right. And in general, the availability for, for bank debt and you know borrowing base has been so restricted. Banks have left the space and, and shrunk their books. So you know the capital still is needed for drilling and non-op capital, that's attractive, definitely a little more expensive, but somewhat filled the gap. So a lot of different things that play that are interesting. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break from the conversation and ask you to pull up April 10th and 11th in your calendars. If you're available and not already registered, be sure to go to mineralconference.com and get signed up for the Mineral Mark Conference being held at the Post Oak Hotel in Houston, Texas. If you're serious about deal making and investment in the mineral space, then I expect to see you there. Let, let's jump in. Let's start with the first quarter and we're just gonna kind of go back and forth on some deals. Yeah, certainly. I think what's gonna be fun is just going back into the headspace of, of that month uh, and that quarter and what were people saying? What was the chatter over the, the water cooler and, and how, looking forward and how those things have transpired? But let me set the table. Obviously, Russia invades Ukraine February 24th. So that's a big precedent on really- Yeah, really game, game changer for, you know, for, for the chess table. Correct, for natural gas in particular and you know the kind of global supply around that for LNG. So that's February 24th. And then you know inflation kind of hovers between 75 and 8.5% from January to March. And then gas prices were 438 at the end of January, they were 469 at the end of February, and they were 490 at the end of March. So it's starting to creep up towards five bucks. And then oil was 83 in January, 91 bucks in February, and 108 in March. So and going going to the moon, all of it's going to the moon now. Yeah, it's, you know, it's going to be 200. And you know, it's funny. Last summer, someone was like, "Man, Timmy, 
it could be a cold winter. We could see 13, 14 in M and gas. I mean, just <laughs> you hear it all, right? Uh, no one really knows it all. But anyways, let's um, so that's the backdrop kind of for that quarter where inflation, where oil and gas prices were. I'm gonna kick it off in January. So on the theme of kind of diversified minerals being a little bit more in vogue, you had community minerals, which is the the minerals arm of one energy partner. Right. They announced a deal at the end of January and they acquired trainer partners, a private firm out in the New Mexico side of the Permian. And there's also a handful of different counties kind of scattered, mix of conventional and conventional. Interesting for sure, right? That was through a private landowner. It, it was mm-hmm. not a marketed deal. Uh, and I know uh, talking to Leo Slutsky, that that was worked on for quite a while. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. They have a lot of a really good ground game and a lot of outreach to direct landowners and you know a, a good program set up. So I'm happy to see them getting some uh, bigger diversified deals under their belt. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, this kind of really kickstarted a, a tremendous year for at the time it was Desert Peak. Right. And now, now Sitio. Once you kind of start start off the commentary on on the falcon merger and the creation of sitio and then i'll kind of riff back yeah no there's there's some you know sitio or sitio was you know desert peak Kimridge back accumulated and aggregated that portfolio through a series of, of rather large transactions i think that they had had their eye on going public for quite some time and merging with falcon was i believe primarily blackstone eagleford mineral position uh that, that created falcon they went you know they went public so so sitio you know essentially buying them or merging and then creating kind of a, a superpower in the in the mineral space i, I didn't expect it to get as big as it got with them continuing on some some other acquisitions taking a, a step back just from that that transaction itself but you know the mineral space as you know and you've talked about on this on this podcast and in your materials you know many times it's become very institutionalized you know a lot of the, the private equity firms they have lots of teams or, or teams that are out there pursuing mineral strategies and with the the publicly traded space with viper with kimball sitio falcon dorchester different groups like that it does create a food chain for this whole ecosystem of royalties and minerals to work. And as you said before, a lot of the family offices want a yield vehicle, and this is a, a really good yield vehicle. There can be, there's been quite a few companies, or there's a lot of companies that we're gonna talk about today that you know have probably family office investors uh, among the group, uh, but it's gonna be interesting to see Cidio has obviously made other other acquisitions this year, but like how big can the space get and, and it, or will they continue to be a consolidator in the space? But that really kind of set it off and it really heat up a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of excitement in the space. When you have a, a fully functioning food chain like this, you know, a little guy like me can go and accumulate assets and I can sell it up the food chain to a little bit bigger guy and he may be able to sell a whole company to a publicly traded royalty company. So it creates a very uh, efficient transaction market, a very efficient you know business to, to, to run. Yeah. So, I mean, what I found interesting about the creation of City on the in the Falcon merger, I mean, like you said, the Desert Peak team have been trying to go public for a while, going public in the volatility of COVID and you know prices going up and down, super hard to find that window. A lot of the rhetoric too was, do we need another public minerals company? A lot of the institutional investors, it was more a conversation around who are we going to take our position out of and to go into this new minerals company wasn't like additional right. capital being allocated. So it's just a challenge, it's a scale issue. I mean, Falcon, for the most part, was stuck, right? I mean, they public around 400 million market cap and stayed there. They didn't do any material transactions. There's a lot of ground game bolt-ons. You know, now the story, it's a great consolidated Eagleford position, right? When they came to market and then it it didn't really change much. And so they were at the lower end market cap and I think but stagnant. And so bailout's not the right word, but I think it was a good result for Falcon to combine right. with them and get scale. And the combined co was 1.9 billion. Then you see the beginning of diversification for Cidio, right? In the beginning, right. it was Desert Peak, right? With Desert, it was Pure Play Delaware first. Right. Oh, yeah. And yeah. they merged with, with Brandon Benson Shop Source. Then they got Midland Basin. So there's Pure Play Permian. Right. Then you add Eagleford, it's still heavy Permian, but and then we know from the Brigham deal later on, which we'll cover, 
now they're in four or five basins. So that that's really interesting. Next deal that happened, this was kind of January-ish timeframe on closing. And this is a PDP heavy deal, very similar development profile, I think, to the community minerals deal we just talked about. This is up in Appalachia. Seller was rich top. Bandera was the buyer. You know, I would say this deal was roughly in the 90 million-ish range. Right. I think what's interesting here, and so Bandera, Chris Transier. Yeah, Chris Transier, Brad Wright, Exportis guys. Yeah, and they're out there. Right. It's good that they're out there. You know, they're, they're continuing to acquire. I think they're, they'll likely continue a lot of focus in Appalachia Basin, which is exciting. And yeah. there's been a, you know, we, we did, EnergyNet's done quite a few transactions for, for Stonehill Minerals, who have a lot of Appalachia Basin deals. They've been, there, there's been a lot of buyer interest for this. So it's good to see some of these other basins uh, heating heating up rather than just, you know, the Permian Basin. Yeah, and, you know, you you look at gas prices, 438, creeping up to five bucks by the end of March. I mean, there's a couple of PDP heavy deals that already transact and close. I know these deals, the negotiations start months before, but you get in the headspace of these sellers and say, hey, this might not be a bad time to get some chips off the table and sell our production heavy assets uh, right. at commodity prices. And then you get someone who's more institutional and has scale, maybe lock in some hedging. You know, that that's definitely interesting. As we look through all the deals, you have more and more kind of production heavy deals happening in, the, in the higher prices, right? It is interesting just the, the buyers that are focused on development and kind of unlocking, turning PUDs into, into PDP, and then the buyers that are more focused on PDP. There are some groups like Kimball that would, you know, just love a, a PDP heavy package that is diversified. Other groups, you know, uh, along the food chain want to want to buy something at, you know, X price and then it be fully developed. And then, but there is, the good thing is that there's a, there's an end buyer for that along the way to, for a, a very PDP heavy deal or a deal uh, transaction that has a lot of uh, development left. For sure. Now, come February, interesting deal. Brigham had done their first kind of sizable transaction, the DJ, if you remember, mm -hmm. November timeframe with Principal Energy. Right. Uh, they then came out and, and did, wasn't a, a giant deal, but, you know, 32 and a half million. It wasn't ground game, right? Because up yeah. to this point, Brigham was kind of known as the public that did the ground game in the Permian. $32.5 million Midland Basin deal, but that was with Echo Energy, who had been pretty quiet. If you remember years ago, Long Point and Echo were the ones, the, the big buyers in, in both the Permian and Anadarko. Right. Um, and they'd since been more in hibernation mode, and it's clearly some portfolio pruning. So always what's interesting, I mean, you've been living and breathing in the A&D space for the last 20-something years. Who's your your end buyer one day, can be a seller two years later? It's just- Yeah, it's very interesting. Conditions, investors, all that, right? And I think Brigham, you know, public, publicly traded company, they were wanting to get scale. They were wanting to become more diverse, to become more attractive to their investors. Yeah, I also think, you know, I did an episode with Rob mm -hmm. last, first part of last year. And, you know, you look at the way they manage, and we'll talk about this with Cidio in a little bit, but they had a pretty large private equity float in their stock. Right. Those private equity firms kind of slowly traded out over time. As soon as they got to much lower percentages, they started transacting larger deals. You know, my thesis is just they had to kind of be patient because it's more difficult to right. go out, issue paper, right? Um, when you're so largely held by private equity. And then they started to, and they did a couple more deals later in the year. But, but that was interesting. And then you go up to Appalachia again. And, you know, it's interesting when you're doing deals in Appalachia, are they typically smaller? They, from a minerals perspective, typically more production heavy because we haven't seen the large chunky deals with the inventory trade in Appalachia to date. Right. You know, the, this deal with with Bandera was PDP heavy, but this Whitehawk deal that they did with San Jacinto had development profile to it. They ended up taking a fourth of the package that was marketed at a price point of 52 and a half million. It was, it was a pretty interesting structure. They had retail capital and they funded it in tranches. Right. I had Daniel Herzon talking about it. But yeah, no, so that I think is significant because that was a, a deal that was not an override, was not a, a PDP heavy deal that was somewhat of scale in Appalachia, but limited takeaway capacity on the midstream side, I think it becomes challenging to do these 
multi hundred million dollar deals, right? And San Jacinto was hopefully going to be that one that everyone could use as a benchmark for right. hopefully other portfolios to follow. But kudos to the Whitehawk team that got creative and we were able to get something done. Another on the smaller side, uh, Maven, you know, the old Phillips team out of Shreveport, mm -hmm. they exited their Hansel assets to Providence, who goes by Sierra Energy Royalties. But yeah, what we do uh, energy net for for many years, for five or six, seven years, we've done a lot of uh, divestment work for for Maven. So they, you know, they have like many mineral and royalty companies, they have a very sophisticated buy side machine setup, and sometimes they'll use energy net as kind of their sell side machine where they're creating like a fifty million dollar portfolio, hundred million dollar portfolio here. But some of the assets they're they're churning through and redeploying that capital again and again, which is uh, it makes a lot of sense for them. No, I think they're really smart. I mean, and, and you guys, they're utilizing your machine to execute this, but they realize that there's a huge end buyer market with good cost of capital at kind of the three million and under market. Yeah, and they are sophisticated. They have a technical team. They engineer things out kind of at its peak cash flow. Right. And, and let that drip out the door at those lower amounts. Yeah. And then they've had a couple of big portfolio exits, one being with Providence. And then they also did the old Andros later in the year, which we can talk about. But I think they're really good at that. I think very sophisticated group and are executing multiple prompt strategy for sure. Now, this one's fun. Do you remember, Nate, all the chatter around the Apache portfolio? Yeah, um, no, it was it was very exciting because I mean, forget what the monthly cash flow was, but it was it was just like I don't know if I've ever seen a mineral deal like this much monthly cash flow or this much net mineral acres in the Delaware Basin. Like this thing is going to go bonkers, and who is the ultimate buyer for it? And kind of everybody scratching their head. There was a lot of excitement about it, and it was a it was a very unique package that, that Apache kind of created from their from you know their their legacy assets. Really, it was just a huge huge uh, mineral and ro royalty portfolio all in the Delaware Basin. But it was a, that was an exciting deal, and I'm glad Crescent Energy KKR took it down. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, I remember getting a bunch of phone calls, you know, folks kind of doing their diligence. And Tim, in your opinion, you know, how many folks can take down <laughs> over a half a billion dollar minerals deal? And I was like, over half a billion? Because I wasn't aware when they were calling me, I wasn't aware of the process. Right. And I'm like, no one, you know, th there's what deal is out there that that's that big? Right. And if there is out there, what kind of process is that? You, you make one phone call, right? Or <laughs> Right. But what ended up happening, kind of looking back, it was really at the fund level, yeah. where a lot of private equity firms participated, and there was alliances on kind of the technical side, folks that had title. There's a lot of really interesting things that play there. And, you know, what I heard through the grapevine, the deal ended up closing for 805 million, which is massive. Um, right. You now you look at this, the CDO and, and bring a merger, which is a, a monster deal, but purely at the asset level, this is right. the biggest deal there's been, right? Yeah, that was, it was pretty monumental at, at the time, right? That they, they closed that deal. There's something of, of scale like that. It was yeah. Apache over the years had done so many Permian transactions and and they got a lot of things that, that came along with it. Great assets for uh, for KKR and I guess it's going to be managed by Crescent Energy. I think Holbrook Dorn is now like a CEO of Crescent Energy. So he's managing the assets and they're still they're still on the hunt as well. Holbrook was at Blackstone for many years. The other from a strategic standpoint that was interesting about that one that I heard through the grapevine is that KKR did all the diligent title diligence up front, made their bid and said, we'll close, you know, sight unseen. Um, wow. Yeah. So from a tactic standpoint, that that created a lot of chatter in the space of, right. you know, is this an expectation going forward? Or is this, you know, when an opportunity that, you know, not once in a lifetime, but it's a very rare portfolio to have that, you know, opportunity to have that big of a deal. Um, and doing all the title. I mean, that makes the sellers a lot more more comfortable when you have a, a price and then, oh, we need 45 or 60 more days to run everything. And we might, you know, who knows, we may defect you another, you know, however many dollars off. So you have to take that into account when you're negotiating. Let's just say it's five to ten percent defect, right? Which is not a crazy number of a deal that size. You're looking at you know forty, eighty million dollars swing in, in value. So right, yeah, yeah, for sure. There's a premium on on that that kind of deal structure for sure. But good stuff. So let's let's move on to second quarter. So 
starting with inflation, kind of April, May, and June, we're at eight and a half percent. We start to creep up to nine percent. Gas prices were at six sixty now by the end of April, eight fourteen by the end of May, and then it softens a little bit to seven seventy in June. So pretty bullish uh, gas environment. And then oil stays steady, one hundred two in April, one hundred nine in May, and one fourteen in June. So when you're before we kind of kick it off and go deal by deal. I mean, when teams are approaching you and you're looking at sign up mandates, can you go back to really the mindset of sellers at this time or just in general, how things are shaping up now that we're in a kind of a sustained three to five month oil window over a hundred bucks and in a super bullish gas market we hadn't seen, right? We, you know, we were at EnergyNet and EnergyNet Indigo is really fortunate kind of this this setup because we've had some de- deals teed up. We did a $80 million deal in the Utica, closed around this time. We did a $120 million deal, a non-op deal in the Williston and Delaware Basin that closed around this deal. We did another Eagle for deal that was like a $44 million deal. But it was like the perfect setup. This was a very volatile, 2022 was a volatile year for commodity prices. Sometimes that can, sometimes, you know, one out of 10 times it works in your favor. Nine out of 10 times it works against you. They, oh, you know, they wanted this, that they were expecting to sell when it was $80 oil, but now it's $60, $60 a barrel. So now we're not going to transact at all. But in this case, for at least us, and the other transactions that, you know, we're, we're going to talk about kind of in this range, uh, a lot of deals got done. And it was, you know, sellers that had really, you know, contacted a group like us or, you know, other other investment banks or, you know, decided to sell three months earlier or two months earlier. And now they were in this really optimal pricing scenario. So uh, it, it made buyers be more aggressive. I mean, it's just, uh, it definitely, when the, when the tape looks like this, like it did in Q2 of, of 2022, and it just makes it easier for buyers to get deals done and buyers to get approval from their boards or investment committees. And if the seller already basically decided they were going to sell or if everything lined up, nothing went wrong. They were going to intend to transact. It just made it a good time for sellers to sell and the buyers were more aggressive. So that's, I mean, that's what we experienced. So uh, we were fortunate how, how the, how the strip fell, tape fell during that time frame to get some, some sizable deals done under our energy net indigo brand. Did you see a lot of retrades happening or maybe more so on, you know, Q3 as you start to go down the slope, but that, that was a, a conversation that came up quite a bit at my minerals conference in November on the A&D panel. It did and it, definitely in the third and fourth quarter, we saw more stuff potential retrades or, you know, kind of poking around the edges to see if that was a possibility uh, just because there was so much volatility and it just makes it, you know, again, like, like we, we mentioned with the, with the title and the KKR uh, Apache deal, we we've seen other situations happen like that, but I mean, time, time kills deals a lot of times. So, if, you know, you're, you have bids due on one day and it's two months later and the deal isn't closed. I mean, it's getting, you're kind of on thin ice. So anything that you can do to speed the time between the made, the offer was made and the, the actual closing or, you know, PSA sign with the you know significant deposit locked in is helpful. And, and we always kind of treat that urgency as, you know, it's key to getting the deals done and making buyer and seller happy. Sure. So let's, let's start digging into the deals. I think relatively quiet April and May, but June, just probably the timing of the closing, but a ton of deals in June and We'll, we'll yeah. spend most of the time here on Q2 going through those. But a couple of things to note. So Spicewood, they press release last year, a large fundraise. You know, they raised in their fund one with co-investments almost 400 million direct institutions, family offices, et cetera. So really, really impressive group, management team to be able to fundraise like that from 2020 to current. No small feat for sure. Definitely. Um, one of They've deployed probably 300 million to date of that. And one of those was, you know, hundred plus million dollar deal in the Delaware, Tilton Capital's Delaware Basin Minerals portfolio. They acquired that. And then a group called Covenant Royalties kind of came on to the scene as the ex-contender uh, energy partners group, largely kind of a ground game aggregator flipper um, over the years. They formed a partnership and were sourcing a lot of deal flow uh, for Eurus Energy. Yeah. Eurus Energy was using their retail platform to raise capital for a 1031 strategy, and they were kind of sourcing deals for them and warehousing them. And they you know, kicked off, they did some deals in the Permian, in Appalachia, and Scoopstack, Eagleford, Haynesville. Uh, so I think what's really interesting about a group like Covenant coming in the market in Q2, Q3, doing 30 plus million dollars of deals is 
you know, someone who has maybe a diversified portfolio down market or kind of has a, like, I would call it like a mismatch portfolio. If you have stuff in Anadarko and the Haynesville, it's hard to find a buyer that's going to do both of those or right. Appalachia and Anadarko, right? And so they've done, they've continued to do deals. I've done great, but it's the emergence of a nice new buyer. Um, yeah. Kevin Christian and his team do a really good job and they're, you know, they're, they're nimble. Uh, they have the money ready, good closers. So, but yeah, you're, you're right. And that they, they can be a little bit more, or they have been a little bit more open to what they will. I mean, they'll, they'll do a deal in the Hainesville and the, in the Anadarko Basin and the Permian and the VJ, you know, they're, they're kind of a little bit more opportunistic uh, if it makes sense. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are going to be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. And then you got Granite Ridge forms, goes public, non-op vehicle from SPAC. And uh, that was primarily the non-op portfolio of, of Grey Rock. So would love you to break that down a little bit, just given how active you guys have been in the non-op space. Yeah, no, uh, really, really happy for Grey Rock and, and the formation of, of Granite Ridge. I mean, the non-op space, I, I can I, I contend that the non-op space has gotten more institutionalized and financially savvy and more money into it, kind of because the royalty and mineral space has got too competitive. It's already been institutionalized. There's, you know, uh, but the non-op space is a similar strategy. You do have the cost-bearing assets. You do have the AFEs going forward. But you know, for many years, Northern Oil and Gas, the publicly traded vehicle, uh, was the only publicly traded non-op company. And uh, again, kind of alluding to that food chain, you need some publicly traded companies at that cost of capital to to do deals and to do larger deals. So having you know Gray Rock, they have been had a lot of success in the Williston, a lot of success in the Permian. Really, you know, fine tune their shop, but they were you know known on the street as a very active and aggressive non-operated working interest buyer. They were on everybody's shortlist. Uh, so them going public uh, or merging with, with with the SPAC and uh, and becoming Granite Ridge, I think it, it's going that makes the non-op space even more sophisticated. And you know, and we may have a you know we may have a third company go you know a non-op com- company go go public before we know it. But I think that 
provides an ecosystem and a food chain for transactions to get done that you do have a publicly traded end buyer. So it'll be interesting to see Granite Ridge focus going forward. I believe Luke Brandenberger at Bordis, an NCAP guy is the is at the helm at CEO. So he's seen a lot, a lot of deals and, and I would imagine them continuing to grow in the space. Yeah. I mean, that deal was, you know, 1.3 billion in size. So I think it'll be interesting to see what Granite Ridge's role is in space going forward as a consolidator. They formalized and rang the bell, you know, formalized the despacking process. October, November timeframe. Right. Um, I know they're probably gearing up for an active 2023. So it'd be interesting to see what they do going forward. But yeah, no, I think. And then they'll, they'll also be diversified too. I mean, they have a diversified asset base, which is interesting. It just makes it a lot, provides them a lot of optionality. No, for sure. And then kind of wrapping up May, kind of, or just kind of late Q2, uh, San Jacinto made uh, an acquisition in the DJ Basin from Incline on right. this amount. So, you know, I, I think when you look at like the Spicewood Tilden deal, I mean, a lot of the chunkier deals happening in the Permian, but there have been some deals here and there, right? We've mentioned Appalachia in Q1, this one, the DJ, that have started to transact, which is great to see. Now, June was super busy and there was all sorts of deals. Non-op, you start to see the securitization of right. scale for Ryza. Really, really interesting. Um, always fun when, especially, right, from your seat, my seat, when we see new, new capital come in, new Andros Capital, you know, they had raised the fund a couple of years ago. It's more of like a an investment firm versus right. a world's company, right? Phil Gale, ex-millennial. Yeah, right. yeah, Philip. Philip worked at, at Millennial, but I think they've re recently uh, maybe raised raised more money. Or, but yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how that formation you know goes out. They they bought the Maven deal, which is Eagleford and Permian. But yeah, Philip and his team will I think do a good job in this space because and they they do have kind of a hybrid. What I understand, non op and minerals and royalty strategy acquisition strategy. Yeah, they have, they have a non op partnership with with David Arrington, I think. Okay, yeah, in the Permian, and yeah, they have different buckets of capital. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, and you can put different asset classes with different investors and kind of match the cost of capital there. But that was a $122 million deal, Midland Basin, Delaware Basin, Eagleford from Maven. So it was a great way to kick off the month. And then I think NOG starts kicking up a super active second half of the year. Right. June 7th, they announced a, a Bakken $170 million non-op transaction, and there was tons to follow, right? So they start doing more and more in the Permian later in the year, but had traditionally done so much in the Bakken. Actually, just had them on the podcast. The episode will go live here shortly. Excellent. Yeah. But they have the footnote I find impressive. Not up interest in half the wells ever drilled in the Bakken. So yeah. you know, talk about owning a basin, right? For sure. But definitely and from a non-ops perspective, it, it is. I mean, Northern's Northern's hit Grand Slams and 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 you know, has their pulse on the Bakken and the Williston Basin. But for a while there, like if it was a Bakken non-op deal, like they were your go-to. And if you couldn't get their attention or if they were, you know, focused on a bigger deal or a different deal, then you're kind of sitting on your hands for a little bit. But now there, there's definitely some, a lot more non-op competition in the, in the Williston. Yeah. And then you got, you know, so Energy has been doing a bunch of deals and Granite Ridge goes public and then boom, Riverbend sells a non-op portfolio, Haynesville, Bakken, Utica, and Fayetteville. Uh, and Riza was the buyer. So it's like, okay. Then there yeah, was no, like a $1.8 billion. I mean, I've been, this is my 20th year in oil and gas A&D. I don't ever remember a non-op deal that was uh, $1.8 billion or even even close to that number. So that's a that's a huge deal. Uh, Riverbend had been acquiring those assets for, for many years, uh, many di different strategies, different investor pools. So it was great to see them pull that off. Very happy for them. And, and then, you know, Ryza has been very active, very active in, in our processes. They bought a number of mineral deals and non-op deals uh, through the EnergyNet, EnergyNet Indigo platform. Just sharp guys. They have a plan. They're executing it. 
But then, you know, this whole uh, asset-backed security, I mean, they they turned that $1.8 billion you know, transaction into an asset-backed security fairly in fairly short order. And I imagine they'll, they'll continue that. So that's a that's a different kind of mousetrap for the industry. And we'll see kind of if it, if it really takes off. I know groups like uh, Donovan Ventures and a handful of others are really active in that space. So we'll see. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, no. I, so six days later, Riser Press releases the the first ever, they call it the oil and gas master trust securization program. It was the first investment, the investment grade, of, you know, a rating on a, a securization. It was a mix of non-op and minerals, super diversified, 3000 plus well bores. I think going back to our note on diversification, right? Diversification is actually needed in, in this type of investment product. So, you know, that that's kind of interesting if this becomes more in vogue, where this becomes a road, you, you know, at the fork in the road, you size a company, hey, we're going to go and utilize this, let's get more diversified, right? As you continue to get scale. Right. So just some more optionality for those groups that start to grow, you know, stuff that's not particularly, you know, super focused on a couple of counties in a basin. But yeah, that that securitization was was done on, you know, a little over $2 billion worth of uh, acquisitions they'd made in the last 12 months. So really interesting. I, I think going back to the backdrop for the year from a macro perspective, curious to see, you know, how attractive, securization looks in a higher interest rate environment. Right. You know, I think in a lower interest rate environment, there, there's definitely a cost of capital arbitrage there on the debt. Right. But I'm I'm not a, an ABS expert. I know Matt Brogdon, who was kind of the father of a lot of the ABS stuff when he went over to Guggenheim and he worked with Rise on other stuff. He's now at Cantor Fitzgerald. He's going to come on the podcast soon and curious to kind of pick his brain. But it'll be interesting to see where that, that space goes uh, here and out. And then Invico, who I had on the podcast not too long ago, it's an income fund out of Calgary. They did a deal one or two years ago with Jackie Haney and her team. Mm -hmm. Up, it was a, is a DJ basin minerals deal. They've also done quite a bit of non-op in the Bakken. They they made a splash with a thirty-two million dollar non-op deal, and it, it was more production heavy. And uh, it was the biggest deal that they've done to date. For Interesting. Long. Yeah. So. I knew they were Calgary based. I thought I thought that Indico had some real estate holdings as well, but they had been doing uh, dipping the toe into oil and gas space, and they bought the. Copper Trail assets through Jackie Haney a, a while back, but uh, yeah, it, it's great, and th that's one of the you know one of the the instances or examples of kind of new money coming into the space or new players coming into the space. It'll be interesting if they continue to remain active. Yeah, no, and they're, you're you're exactly right. I think they do different types of real estate, and they even they have some other buckets as well. So they're not a pure play, but they do have an energy team, right? Um, Sarah Pettigrew and, and others, ex bankers, ex private equity background, so sophisticated. But no, it's interesting. I mean, it's an income fund, right? It goes yeah. back to point on wanting yield and everything, and uh, you know, she's always told me they're they're more competitive on on well bore deals and and production heavy because they can really lean in because it's a lot less variability and and they're just looking for that that yield right and that's what their investors want they they've been more successful on deals like that so and that's what that's what we that's what we experience from kind of deal maker perspective I mean the the heavy PDP deals the heavy production deals they are easier to transact because you can get buyer and seller expectations to align and then it just becomes a, a function of which buyer or bidder is going to lean in the hardest on it or which one's going to you know pull back the reins. And it comes back to the asset-backed securities. I don't believe as those assets go into that investment vehicle, I don't believe there's if or much or any upside associated with it. It's almost, I mean, they want it to be well more only, you know, very little upside associated with it. So you're kind of locking in that value and that asset-backed security. And then, you know, it declines on its own. You know, it's, there's not going to be a, a huge wave of development that's going to come and impact it. Yeah, a lot, lot of hedging, right? It's, it, right. it's very much a financially engineered product to, to the definition. An area we haven't really seen a lot of activity, you know, there was a little bit of Anadarko activity with Covenant that we mentioned, but Brigham, and this is maybe preluding to what happened later in the year, but some portfolio pruning. So they sold 60, a little over $67 million worth of Anadarko Basin Minerals to Eckerd Land Acquisition, who 
you and I know has really been the leader in Anadarko since 2020. I mean, right. Troy Eckerd took a contrarian view when Anadarko was a bad word and you'd get shushed out of the room. Right. Mentioning it in 2020, he was blown and going. He's built a substantial portfolio, a lot through ground game. This was interesting to me that they they carved out a portion of, of Brigham's portfolio. So probably balance sheet work and maybe cleaning up the portfolio for discussions going forward with Sidio at the time. I'm not sure, but that one was was definitely interesting for sure. And then and then Sidio made another couple of big splashes, which right. I, I wouldn't say I was necessarily surprised, but you never know with the Falcon merger, you think maybe that's that's it for them for the year. Yeah, right. And then they come back to back same day, June 27th, they announced acquisition from Foundation Momentum. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you to kind of break those down a little bit. You know, with the, the Momentum uh, asset transaction or the offering, uh, what was a big deal as well? Uh, you know, uh, Studio, Studio uh, took down the, the Permian portion and then in the next quarter, Haymaker took down the non-Permian portion. But the, the Foundation deal was probably, you know, in the works at the same time the Momentum process was was, was going. But that, those are, you know, both, I think it was over $500 million in, in asset transactions co- combining the both. But uh, yeah, I, I think it definitely... Studio kind of planted the flag as, you know, they're going to be out there, you know, top buyer, a really consolidator in the space. So I think it got everybody's attention that, you know, process is going forward. I want Studio, you know, in the in the mix, in the race to, to, to see those. It, you know, I think it caught, caught a lot of people's attention. Yeah, no, the, the foundation deal was $323 million, a little over 19700 NRAs uh, for anyone looking for comps out there. And then the momentum deal was $224 million, okay. yeah. uh, 12200 NRAs. So about $550 million. Yeah, definitely a statement for sure. Kind of interesting. They they step out of the Eagleford with the Falcon merger, but then they do two large Permian transactions. So clearly, Drake right. sent a message that hey, we're we're still Permian shop. Message changed a little bit with the Brigham deal, but definitely th- those were exciting deals announced in the summer. And then going into July, Haymaker, who you know we all love Carl, and yeah, had such success after the exit to KRP and hadn't taken down an asset for two three years. And it was great to see him and the team take something you know over a hundred million. This is. Kind of back to his old roots, right? Diversification and right. I think filling in the shoes of some of those diversified publics who haven't been as active. Uh, Blackstone hasn't done a deal in a while, and KRP has has been more active. You know, the deal they just did with Hatch was Midland only, which was kind of an interesting uh, strategy right. change for them. But yeah, I think Haymaker steps in. You know, they they said in their press release, hundred plus million dollar deal. It's North Dakota, it's Montana, it's Louisiana, it's both on the the Haynesville, both Texas, Louisiana side. So diversified for sure. But great to to see them back in the mix. And then, you know, that kind of, the Haymaker deal bleeds us into July. Let's do a little update and refresher for everyone so we can kind of see where we're at commodity price-wise. Gas is 7.28 at the end of July. It bumps up to 8.81 in August and then back down to 7.88 in September. So still pretty strong. You know, oh, yeah, real, real, real strong considering we're at three bucks, 3.50 right now. So It hit nine at some point in, in that window. But yeah, I think if you have not gas, you're still, still pretty bullish. I think it was at that time that Darren Zanovich decided, hey, it's time to go to market with my portfolio, right? So everyone with gas assets think it's a good time to sell for sure, right? And then inflation starts ticking down a little bit, 8.5% goes to 8.2% in September. But at least flattening out. Yeah, and exactly. And you know, talking to some banks recently, they think it gets sustained at these levels for at least two, three more quarters, but the Fed will be some under, under some pressure to, to lower them in Q4. Um, so we'll see if that thesis starts to play out and interest rates start to go back down. But Freehold, who was extremely active in 2021, comparatively speaking as well, with the other publics in the U.S. really not doing much, mm-hmm. they came out and made announcements on their three deals of 2022. I'll kick it over to you. These were all press released on July 7th. If you may want to cover some of them, and I'll, I'll interject. 
No, they, uh, you know, Freehold uh, in 2021, I, I want to say that was kind of their first year when everybody was kind of perking up and like, who are these guys from Canada that are that are getting aggressive and buying all these deals? But I mean, I think it just goes to show they're, you know, they're, they're still very active and still trying to get deals done and, and willing to lean in on the prices, getting Saxit done in the Midland, uh, Howard County specifically from Cortez. And then I, I can't recall who who the seller was for Eagleford, but I, I remember it happening. But uh, but no, I mean, again, like there was, there's Freehold in, in Canada, there's Franco, Nevada that did quite a few deals a couple of years earlier, but they've been kind of quiet uh, as of late. Uh, they had some, uh, Franklin Nevada was a gold mining company or is a gold mining company that has some partnerships with Continental Resources and has some uh, deals some other areas as well. But Freehold, yeah, I think you'll you'll continue to see them around buying deals and, and closing them. And three in a month is a, is a good good work for them. You know, it's on, on Frank real quick. My understanding is that they have allocation limits for oil and gas in their portfolio because they are a gold mining company. And I right. think due to certain commodity prices, they went above that threshold from from a revenue standpoint. So I don't believe they're in the position to do transactions right now. So right, it sounds like a similar situation back when, when you know, a decade ago, there used to be more oil and gas companies, EMP companies that were tied to uh, utilities. There was People's Energy and there was Dominion and Energen that were tied to utilities. But because of the the shale boom and the run up in prices, you know, they were supposed to be this stodgy utility with this small little EMP arm. But then the EMP arm was more valuable than the utilities. Like, oh, hold on, we, we promised our investors one thing. Well, let's get back to that. Good problems to have though, right? Out, right, yeah. Outperformance, which is good. But yeah, so, you know, these deals in aggregate and anyone who wants to hear more about these in more detail, straight from the horse's mouth, uh, Dave Spiker and Rob King from Freehold came on to talk about them on the podcast. And I'll put a link in the description. But the Eagle for deal was 32 million Canadian. The Midland Basin deal with, with Saxa was 19 million Canadian. And then the deal with Cortez and Howard was 123 million. So in aggregate, you know, we're looking at, you know, 150, 160 million. Yeah. So, and Howard County is a great, great zip code. A lot of, a lot of active, drilling activity going on. So I'm sure there was a big upside component to that one. For sure. Over to you, NOG makes another splash in the Midland Basin. So why don't you break that one down? That was August 17th. Yeah, no, certainly. So as we discussed earlier, Northern Oil and Gas, NOG uh, used to be you know, primarily non-op in the Williston Basin. Uh, over the years, they've, they've broadened their wings and have been doing more deals in the Permian Basin. I believe they've done some non-op deals in the Appalachia Basin too. But yeah, no, I think it just speaks to you know, where they, Northern Oil and Gas is a publicly traded company. You know, Their strategy uh, works in other basins, and, and I think they can get scale uh, in the Midland Basin and the Delaware Basin. I think you'll likely continue to see that. They had done the end of 2021, they had done a, a deal with uh, with Veritas, a Carnelian Energy back company. It was like a $400 million non-off deal in the Permian Basin. So uh, pretty exciting stuff. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputtered, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-whisking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. 
If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. And then uh, Brigham acquires Avant, which I'm going to take a little, and I just did an episode with Jacob, if everyone yeah. can kind of hear his perspective, I'm breaking it down. But it was August 1st, I think. I had a you know charity, Minerals and Non-Op Reception mm-hmm. in Dallas. And that morning, Reuters leaked an article that said Brigham's for sale. And it was the more, I mean, the morning of 200 Minerals and Non-Op CEOs getting together, right? So there was <laughs> all this buzz and poor Jeff Boyd was there putting his head down in the corner, like, please don't ask me about this, about this article. So what was interesting is, you know, I get so many calls about rumors and did you hear this and hear that? And sometimes they're valid. Sometimes it's, it's all hearsay. And so when the Brigham deal gets announced August 22nd with Avant, all the phone calls I get was like, this is Rob and team saying, we're not going anywhere, right? Brigham's <laughs> here to stay. And so this is $132.5 million deal. It's their biggest deal to date, right? It's in the Midland Basin. Jacob and team at Avant did a phenomenal job, super consolidated uh, Martin and Midland County package. But that was super interesting because that was all the chatter, right? Like, oh, you know, maybe they leaned in because they want to send a message to the market. Like, this is all, all the right. gossip. All the speculation. And then, and then two weeks later, Cidio acquires Brigham. And I'm like, no one knows what the hell's going on. No one knew, right? And, uh, you know, when I talked to Rob's going to come on the podcast and talk about the whole process in, in about a month or so. But, you know, I, I think just it's one of those things, a merger of that scale is there's so many things that can go wrong. You know, Rob told me, he's like, the Yvonne acquisition was a good deal for Brigham. Right. And it was something that Cidio would want. And so right. it was kind of a no brainer, right? And Cidio had, had just gotten done with so many other things. I think they weren't really actively in that process. And so there's, there's a lot of things that fell into place, but the, that timeline from August 1st to September 6th was a fun one. Yeah. It, 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 interesting seeing situations like that where, you know, it's like the nature channel, one, one, you know, one, one fish is eating the other fish while it's getting eaten by the bigger shark. You know, now, we've had some situations like that in the past. I think we did a deal with uh, Athlon a long time ago and like, you know, the ink, ink had barely dried on our, our paper on the deal that we done. And then, you know, and Canada was buying Athlon. So it's always interesting to see, see, see that happen in, in, in real life. Uh, yeah, but you're, you're right. Uh, some of those, the decision to do a big, you know, to sell the company or to do an acquisition, uh, you know, sometimes they are uh, different thought processes. They don't necessarily have to, it just have, needs to be a good, a good business decision. It doesn't necessarily have to have to, you don't have to have a, a tie between them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then, you know, wrapping up Q3, I think some interesting PDP heavy deals. So Cavallo Mineral Partners have been running a process that closed in Q3, Appalachia production heavy, wasn't a wellbore deal, wasn't PDP only, but production heavy, just over 60 million that closed for. So you start to see some more activity in Appalachia. Some of these, these funds that have been active for a long time, their stuff is slowly maturing and they're they're getting that out the door and, you know, somewhat similar kind of mid-market 50 to hundred million. We saw a bunch of those, right. And their deal, this deal with Cavallo. So another good, interesting data point for Appalachia, but we still haven't seen that big, that big kind of development profile, multi hundred million dollar deal up there yet. And then Dorchester did a deal. They announced it on September 16th. It's really interesting. I don't think a lot of people understand how Dorchester works, but they're not allowed to hoard any cash on the balance sheet. They, 
they distribute it all back to cash holder uh, to shareholders and you know what whatever little amount is, is carved out for gna is just for for yeah but most of their acquisitions are all equity deals all stock deals it has to be all stock yeah, yeah. it has to be all stock so when you ever you read a Dorchester press release and you see the the units conveyed and and, and all that, it's it just think of it as a is an all equity deal and it has to be I think the right buyer and the, and the the right circumstance for them to be able to do something with Dorchester. But they usually knock over one or two a year, right? And this was yeah, definitely twenty one hundred NRAs, New Mexico, Texas. I think they have a pretty big Permian portfolio, so I'm assuming that was Permian heavy. But yeah, no. So it, it, one, one of the things that is interesting, I think, about Dorchester is that you can uh, potentially, I mean, you think you kind of think through it because they do distribute the unit holders, uh, I guess, dividends or, or whatever the, the word is for it. But you could potentially get your 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 X dollars worth of Dorchester shares, and then if it, if it you know, and then the next quarter you get another dividend on top of that because you own those shares during that time frame, so you can get a little a little bump to your uh, unless you unless you divested them or, or, or sold them in the open market. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then uh, this was. Press release later on, but you know, backdating the actual transaction date, Alliance Royalties uh, made a small acquisition from Noble under their their vehicle Belvedere is an eleven point four million dollar deal in the Delaware Basin. I think you know Noble's portfolio has predominantly been Eagleford, Bakken, Haynesville, and Midland Basin. Mm-hmm. They think they kind of dabbled and picked some stuff up along the way, and so portfolio cleanup, and they got that divested. They just in the Alliance portfolio, they disclosed the breakout. There was seven million seven hundred twenty four thousand attributed towards. Proven properties, and then the upside was three million six hundred sixty-seven thousand. So, just for anyone out there, you know, looking for metrics, that's a a good data point. And that was three hundred ninety-four NRAs uh, in the Delaware. Um, right, and you know, Kirk leads uh, Alliance, but it's I mean, their their backstory and history is you know interesting as well. Just being a, a typical mining company, and then they did the deal with a uh, uh, Dale a number of years back. But yeah, it's good to see them active. And I think there was another Alliance deal that was injured, you know, in, in that same same time frame or right? in that yeah, same ten uh, k a little later, which we'll get into in Q four. But yeah, and that was a sizable one. That was uh, around eighty four million. So great to see them kind of active. And yeah, like you said, their Alliance is an interesting vehicle. They're almost like a public that acts like a family office. You know, right. Even, it's a mineral arm within a mining company. They have very sticky investor investor base. Ross Craft, the CEO, is a, is a large shareholder, has a big family office. So they look generationally at performance of the assets and can buy a little bit more longer term. I think they're a unique animal and continue to to put you know hundred plus million ish to work yeah. here. Uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll kick it over to you to, to wrap up September. So U.S. Energy and NOG uh, both non-op deals. Why, why don't you break those down? Yeah, certainly. So you know, U.S. Energy's uh, been really active in the non-op space. They like to do kind of development plans along with good operators. So good to see them do the the Permian non-op. And then uh, from what I heard, the Alpha Permian, you know, uh, Delaware Basin deal that Northern won was was very, you know, aggressive or, you know, active, a lot of competition in that process. So you you tend to see, you know, in non-op space and mineral space, you know, when you have a publicly traded company as your top of the heap buyer, that's probably the best you're going to get from, from, from a seller's perspective. So uh, good to see the Alpha Permian guys be able to be able to exit. And I bet you will see them out and about doing it all over again soon. Yeah. So the you know, the U.S. Energy deal is 60 million, Permian not up, and then NOG. It's kind of their sweet spot, right? It seems to be right around 150 million. This is 157.5. Right. And that was, uh, you know, 2,800 acres in the Delaware. So then, you know, you go over to Q4 uh, to bring it home. Inflation is starting to flatten, and it looks like we're on the bottom side of a bell curve. It's, you know, probably around 7% right now, I think. So that's interesting. Uh, as a trend, maybe uh, we get some lower interest rates going to 2023. And then gas in October, 566. November 545, December 553. So it hasn't really been until recently, January, where it's, it took that kind of steep dive off the right. cliff. But still, you know, kind of the new normal Q4 was kind of that five to six bucks range, which is still good, right? And then oil, 87 bucks in October, 
84 November and 76 in December. So oil significantly softens in Q4, both from operated deals, not of minerals, from your perspective for energy net, having as many touch points as you do, you know, that that's a 20, 30% drop off in oil prices. How did you see that affecting things? You mentioned retrades, right? So we, we, we ended the year strong in terms of getting deals done, but I will say that, you know, the, the deals that were, you know, closing in November, late November, you know, December were, 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 were tough, tougher to get to the finish line than the typical. And it did, did definitely have an impact that, you know, the, the oil price was dropping. It felt like the, the year was running out of gas a little bit, just commodity price wise. But yeah, there, there, there were some definitely some, you know, we had to go back to, you know, maybe a, a second or third group, you know, second or third highest bidder on a process where the highest bidder, bidder may have faltered or or had, you know, uh, cold feet about moving forward. Uh, but we were able to, fortunately, able to get those deals to the finish line and get them closed. But yeah, the, the same, the, the positive side of having, you know, kind of in, in Q2, having commodity prices run up was, it was really the inverse of that in December, at least on the oil side with it kind of creeping down. It just made people less, uh, less confident in their bids. And, you know, again, we're trying to get them, trying to get the, the, the buyer and seller's uh, hand out to, uh, to clasp and, and, and shake on it before uh, before everything falls apart. When you look at the year, commodity pricing was very much a bell curve. Right. And I think emotionally, we're in a very different spot than we were in January, but we're kind of at the same place. Right. Gas price was and where oil was. I mean, oil was, I think, 83 in January, right? It's, 70, it's it, You know, it, it's interesting, like this actual spot prices, and then you have futures prices, but then you have, I guess, what I would call consensus pricing. pricing and, you know, it feels like, to me, it feels like the oil and gas industry as a whole is, is kind of long-term bullish right now, long-term bullish. But, you know, the fear of recession or fear of, you know, inflation, it, it keeps tampering things. But I feel like structurally, we should be good in a good spot for two to three years. But it just emotionally, it, it, has, it has a toll when, you know, you make an offer or you expect to sell something at a certain commodity price, and then it's drastically different 30 days later. Uh, you know, am I making the right decision to sell or to buy or either or? You just don't have as much conviction with with what you're doing. So the volatility, uh, if, 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 if for a deal maker's perspective, from my perspective, if we just had, you know, eighty dollar oil and four fifty gas flat the whole year, make my job easy. <laughs> no, for sure, for sure. No, but one note's interesting. I mean, from a minerals perspective, you know, the the fl- short term fluctuations can be highly uh, detrimental to a process that is PDP heavy or it's got very duck heavy. Right. Because I, I don't want to oversimplify here, but let's just say fifty percent of the value of a light of a well from a cash flow perspective and reserves comes out in a year, year and a half. With the right. steep declines. So you better time, you know, commodity price really matters. Now, these short-term fluctuations, the forward curve in 2025 to 28, that isn't really changing that much. So right. if, if you're buying a portfolio and there's a good amount of PUD value in there, is underwriting going to change that much for some of that? You know, the seller's argument would be no. Um, the buyer's argument would be you can always use it against the seller, you know, falling commodity prices. But it, it's just kind of an interesting way to look at it. I mean, in a falling commodity price environment, does the more undeveloped type deals become a little bit more easy to transact on? I don't know. Right. Know. Yeah. I mean, with with whips and ducks and puds, I mean, you do have to think, really think about, think hard about when are those actually going to come online? And with these, like you said, with these, you know, horizontal shale wells where you can may get 50%, 60% of the value in that first six months, 12 months, uh, has a big impact. And, you know, if you can capture that at $100 oil rather than capture that at $75 oil, that makes a big difference. Yeah. And negotiating effective dates and all that becomes yeah. what can kind of bridge the gap and get you across the finish line. But Let's uh, let's bring it on home. So, NLG again, they went you know uh, tried the hat trick here. You know, September they did Alpha Permian deal, and then October 11th, another 130 million dollar Delaware Basin deal, undisclosed seller, and then um, on October 19th, 330 million dollar deal with Midland Petro DC Partners, which is a which is a vehicle of Arrington. So, 
And that's a high, that's a lot of development on that deal. That's that's a, a somewhat of a departure from Northern's typical deals where they, you know, buy a kind of a large PDP with some upside. This is mostly upside. It's like almost a JV type situation. Yeah. You know, we talked about it on the, on the podcast episode, you know, they, they said that they're starting to gravitate more towards partnership type discussions. Um, I think they've kind of earned the right. They're getting some phone calls and right. It, you know, versus having to just go out and do packages. And I think they're getting more comfortable with the Permian as well. I mean, they, they joked around, they said they were just, the guys that everyone hates in a deal process. They look <laughs> and they look, they look and they never bid, right? They never bid anything real. And he said, we had to learn. So we did that for a year or two. And then we started to really take down material deals and right. folks started to you know circle back with us. And I think a lot of these deals happened be, because of, it was seller driven, right? To re-engage energy. So um, no, just a, I believe- Yeah, on, 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 the, on their perch, I mean, it happens with, Happened with Kimball, you know, it, it happens over time with Cidio. Here, once you're the winning bidder on three or four deals, you know, your phone starts to ring, you know, other way around and, you know, that you entering data rooms or entering processes. I mean, you're, you're getting the first call before maybe someone enters a process. For sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, great job for energy. Great 2022 for sure. You know, kind of going towards the end of October, some interesting deals. Uh, Post Oak Minerals uh, made a nice little splash with Viking Minerals in the Eagleford. Right. A thousand NRAs there. I know I've gotten to know Eric Madrine team really well. They kind of consolidated historic legacy portfolios over at Postdoc to have one vehicle now going forward. And they've been doing a bunch of little deals in Haynesville and Permian and Eagleford. And this was more of a larger deal. And I think they're excited about doing more of that going forward. And then uh, this is the deal you mentioned before uh, Alliance Royalty is October 26 was the the transaction date, 83.1 million. So pretty sizable deal, about 900 NRAs in, in the Permian uh, from Jace Minerals, which private group, I think just one of those Midland groups who's been around forever, had the assets, multi-generational, right? right? A family office in many respects. And then this deal, again, because you don't really see much in the Anadarko Basin these days, but the old Fortis portfolio, right? It was being managed by the Pegasus team and the Permian stuff got rolled into Cap Minerals. And then there was the stack stuff that was just being managed. And it tried to go to market a few times, but time wasn't right. And then Kane Anderson, who for all intents and purposes, I thought were just not going to be in the minerals game anymore. They form Land Run Minerals 5 and acquire the entire stack position uh, of, of Fortis and Fortis-related entities. And I, I, there's, I don't have a disclosed amount for that, but this is a sizable deal and pretty yeah. well from, from my understanding. I mean, on, on their website, you know, it had 1,700 wells and five rigs on the asset. So not a ton of activity, but a ton of well bores. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting just that, that I was surprised that Land Run Minerals or I believe that are associated with 89 Energy what was the, you know, Kane Anderson was the, uh, the buyer of it. And I'd kind of, in my head, I'd, I'd kind of forgotten that Fortis Minerals still had that large position. And then when it popped up, I was like, oh yeah, that, you know, yeah, that was a huge position. Uh, but if you think back on, you know, Kane Anderson, they had the roll up of, of you know, all of those, you know, Oklahoma stack scoop companies uh, that now 89 Energy is managing, but they had a ton of data on all those wells, I bet. Yep. No, for sure. Yeah. And you can, you can leverage all that to get that additional line of sight on an area that doesn't have a ton of rig activity. And so, you know, they, they have the Devons and the Ovintas and the Marathons, Coteras, Continentals, the, the major players who I think have kind of figured it out and they, right. they have their well economics and then any peripheral stuff is probably their private operators, right? And the same umbrella. And I, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think this kind of going back to the Apache Delaware deal, I think this was more at the fun level is a different structure is right. my gut feel on how to make it work. But Nonetheless, great to see a deal of scale like this uh, in the Anadarko. I know there's lots of folks who put together pretty sizable portfolios, whether they want to admit it or not, uh, didn't buy it at the opportune time. You know, scoop stack was blowing up and, and it kind of fell off the cliff. And so right. as portfolios slowly start to mature, 
you know, hopefully this is a data point that can be used to get some more exits in 2023 for yeah. anyone with. Yeah, I feel like a lot of, you know, ScoopStack, I mean, the EMP kind of the operators themselves, a lot of them turned out to be, you know, bag holders, but I feel like there was a big, you know, minerals and royalties uh, acquisition game going on. And then, you know, 2020, 2019, 2020 happened. And a lot of those folks were, you know, they had bought minerals that they expected to be developed in a, in a much faster uh, pace than that they ultimately were. But once, once those are developed, it, you know, it's, uh, you know, it turns into a really nice PDP, you know, cash flow and yield asset. Yeah, I think one of the challenges why you don't see private equity and teams rushing back to Anadarko, I think it's just hard to put a lot of money to work. I think yeah. the marketed packages space is for reasons we just talked about, you know, there's a bit of a bit ass there. Yeah. Um, and then on the ground game, it's just super tiny, super fragmented. Right. It's not as big a basin as the Permian, for instance. I think my mind kind of goes to the Haynesville. A lot of folks talk about it being so attractive in the near term. It's going to be a lot of development, but it is smaller. So I, I wonder when you kind of hit the roadblock for the Haynesville in terms of capital deployment, three, four, five, six years down the road. I'm not sure. But yeah, that's the one thing about the Permian is just it's so giant. It's yeah. the beast that keeps on giving, right? For ground game, for larger packages, et cetera. That, and that's why everyone contains the focus there. But um, yeah. You know, on that note, so Desert Royalty, they they press released the deal on November 17th with a private mineral owner. I know talking to KC, this was many, many years in the works. Uh, right. A little over 2,900 NRAs, uh, Reeves and Loving County primarily. So great little deal, uh, undisclosed value, but given the NRA count, you can probably use some market comps. It's a pretty sizable deal. And then over Peregrine, Wolf and, and Josh and team, they didn't disclose the value. They do a handful of these deals throughout the year. I wanted to mention this one in November just because... It had uh, 31 properties, but PDP diversified across multiple basins. If I had to guess, I don't, I don't know the exact, exact details, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing, you know, a deal this size, you know, two or three times a month. I mean, well, I mean, I bet they do 20 or 30 deals in a year. They're, they're, they're active and they're, they're real astute in terms of what they are willing, what they will buy and what they'll underwrite. So it's good to see those groups out there, you know, continuing to buy assets. They're, they're, they've been a great buyer and great partner with EnergyNet over the years. For sure. And then, you know, a deal actually that got, announced in November, but I, you know, I just had the closing date because the value changed was Kimball acquiring Hatch. Now, this is interesting, right? It's you got Cidio, who's pure play Permian, not diversified, merged with Brigham, now they're in five basins. You got Kimball, who's the de facto diversified Pubco going for a rifle shot Permian acquisition. So clearly there's value in Permian and but but that was a I think that that was not something I would have predicted. But closed on December 15th. Originally for 290 million, I think with whatever post-closing adjustments were made, 271 million, it was part stock, uh, part cash. So definitely hatches believing in the Kimball store. I, you know, their their stocks recovered nicely and, and oh, yeah. well throughout 2022 for sure. But you know, any, I think any the I think the hatch stuff was kind of methodically put together. I mean, I think it. I mean, it, it was even though it was in you know primarily the Midland Basin, I believe, uh, and there may be primarily Delaware, Delaware. primarily yeah. primarily primarily Delaware, but it, it seemed to be you know all under very good operators and very methodically you know kind of put together over time. So I think it tucks in well with with Kimball's assets. But I'm like you, I wouldn't have if I had to guess. You know, ten names that would have been the, the winning buyer for that, I probably wouldn't have guessed Kimball at the time. You know, and one thing too, I mean, I mentioned this is a stock and equity deal. The the units that were um, assigned to Hatch was roughly $120 million worth in value for the deal. $150 million was cash. You know, the, the deal that Kimball did last year with Cornerstone was an all-cash deal. But, you know, all of all of Cidio's deals, for the most part, have been have been equity, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm not sure. I got to go back. The deal with Momentum, if that was cash. I think that was cash. Okay. Yeah, so those deals were cash with foundation and everything. But, you know, punchline is the U.S. publics are still doing equity-driven deals, uh, Freehold right. has done everything with cash, uh, being on the Canadian side. So in the right environment, you know that that becomes attractive and you can do deals. But as we saw during COVID, uh, when their stock 
performance gets takes a hit, they're they're really uh, handcuffed and it's tough to transact. So interesting for sure. And then one that uh, super, I mean, Sixth Street is a very unique animal. Um, every once in a while, they just splash the pot big time. Early December, formed an entity called Cobblestone Minerals LP and acquired Long Point uh, Minerals One portfolio. Undisclosed amount, but you know, Long Point. You have to think it's big. You have to think it's a big number, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Echo and Long Point, right? Were pension money and large institutional capital, large family offices. They were kind of going toe to toe years ago in the Anadarko and the Permian. And Long Point's been quiet the last few years, but Long Point One and Two raised one point five, one point seven billion. I mean, it's a lot. So Long Point One, just in capital deployed, was seven hundred something million. Right. So don't know what the the total amount was, but it's a big deal, right? Oh so, yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, the uh, Canadian Pension Fund is that Long Point's primary yeah, sponsor. Yeah. Correct, correct. That's an interesting one, and we'll we'll kind of see what you know Long Point's going to do going forward, and also what Sixth Street's going to do with that vehicle going forward. Uh, if that's an SPV or something they're going to do additional acquisitions out of. Uh, yeah, Sixth Street. Sixth Street has made some you know really timely acquisitions. Uh, they did the Laredo. Loretto Energy deal, either Glasscock or Howard County a while back. And um, but they've they've made some really good acquisitions over the years. So happy for them. Yeah. And then December, uh, towards the end of December, and we got a new player now uh, in the space, Saxon Capital Partners. Uh it's the RSP permian team. Okay. And uh they they've got some new capital partners. They took a third of a Mesa Minerals Partners too in the Haynesville down for an undisclosed amount. But great to see, you know, that that was a big portfolio. You know, Darren, if, if everyone remembers, acquired Live Oaks uh, Minerals position to Hainesville for 105 million, I think, in June of 2021. So, you know, you fast forward a year with some ground game bolt-ons and everything, and he turned around and really, I think, got some great value for investors out of that. So great result there and really excited to see Saxum and, and what they do going forward. I know they're, I had lunch with them the other day. They're, they got some non-op stuff in the Hainesville. They're looking at operated. I think they're going to have a really robust, balanced platform going forward, which yeah, it's Haynesville right now, but will likely be Permian at some point as well. And then kind of last deal to mention, just on the non-op side, PHX Minerals, you know, you see see this as an ongoing theme. They're consistently kind of doing bolt-ons and, and growing their little story, being kind of a small cap public minerals company. They're cleaning up a lot of their non-op stuff and send the message to the market that we're more and more focused on royalties. So they sold for about 10 million, 10.7 million. 257 legacy legacy non-op wellbore uh, assets. Uh, right. Yeah, they've been uh, Chad since Chad Stevens has been over there. You know, they ch- and Ralph D'Amico, they you know, changed the names from Panhandle Oil and Gas. They used to be kind of taking on non-op deals, but you know, their message to the market is they want to be a you know publicly traded royalty and mineral company, so they're divesting off the non-ops. And I imagine you'll con- you'll continue to see them. You know, as they do more of that, you know, probably buying bigger and bigger mineral and royalty packages. Yeah, and it, you know, the kind of a closing comment, which I think is interesting. I mean, you look at PHX. They've done well. I mean, they're bringing public equity cost of capital to the lower part of the space, right? One to $10 million deals. And, you know, what Ralph and team typically do is they'll, they'll have a bunch of deals kind of in the, in the pipeline, and then they'll press release kind of the aggregate amount. Right. So why couldn't there be more PHXs? I think it makes more sense in the venture exchange in Toronto. If you bring public equity cost of capital into the ecosystem and give these, you know, Chris, you know, this, there's unlimited one to $10 million portfolios in the minerals oh, yeah. that are yeah. managed by personal capital, family office capital that would be happy to turn it. And so I think there's that, that's a really interesting space for everyone to keep their eye on that I think can grow for sure. It's, it's kind of that junior that junior market by design. But yeah, listen, that was fun. Thanks for yeah, that was good. back and forth. Closing comments over to you and what, what you're excited about for 2023, what you think is going to happen from a, from a deal perspective. And I'll, I'll chime in as well. 
No, we're, um, we're we're excited about 2023. I mean, selling you know over a billion dollars in 2022. We have a lot of solid asset quality assets in the pipeline that we'll be launching in in January and in Q1 of 2023. Our EnergyNet Indigo platform for higher value deals is really taken off thanks to the support of our uh, really good just you know technical team, Keith Reese and Riley Blight and then Jonathan Kalkin and uh, Cameron Cooper and Enketa. Sinha, you know, the, the, just the, the technical work that we're doing, uh, I'm really impressed by. I'm impressed by what they're what they're churning out. We're happy to get be getting deals done. We're still trying to increase our number of buyers. So this year we had about three thousand or so new buyer registrations. But that kind of the the the, the new buyers entering entering the market for the sub you know million dollar sub three million dollar space that want yield vehicles is, is very large and sizable. And they don't all they can't all write hundred million dollar checks, but writing a five hundred thousand dollar million dollar check because the Ukraine war looks like it's going to continue or not continue or this wind is blowing this way. There's a lot of just uh, different kind of behaviors and incentives for, for buyers to get into the, the mineral or the, the oil and gas space in general. And that, that usually starts for newer investors in the mineral and royalty space. And then they kind of graduate to non-ops. Maybe at some point they want to have their own operating company, but kind of people that want to get direct exposure to oil and gas assets, uh, you know, they typically buy minerals and royalties, non-cost bearing interest. But no, th- thanks for having me on. This has been great. I always learn something and you're a wealth of knowledge. No, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. And I, uh, I'm really interested to see this next quarter play out with commodity prices because that'll, I think, if things can stabilize a little bit on the NAC gas side, I think that'll be important. I think if it slides down a little bit, you could have a lot of challenges for anyone with the NAC gas portfolio, maybe pull some processes or right. just try not to do anything rash in the short term. But yeah, listen, it, it was a great year and we got new players in the space and you know others that it's been nine, 12 plus months since their last deal. So it's about that time for them to yeah, take the, again. So the itch, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and then, you know, Cidio is, is now almost 5 billion. I kind of believe 10 billion is, is the, is the target that helps get scale enough for institutional investors to trade in and out. And if that happens to be the magic number, it'd be really exciting to see what the future has in store with them. So a lot of, a lot of cool things that continue to happen and the non-off space now as it continues to evolve. So looking forward to 2023, but thanks again, Chris, uh, enjoy the friendship and the partnership and we'll, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you, buddy. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the minerals and royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the minerals and royalties authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.